This is Chris Gofford. I'm the writer and host of The Trials of Frank Carson, and this is the first of our bonus episodes. I'm here with Los Angeles Times Deputy Metro Editor Steve Clow, who's been my editor at the LA Times for the last six years and is the editor on this project. Hello, Steve. Hey, Chris. How you doing? Doing great. I'm excited to talk to you about the first episode of The Trials of Frank Carson, which is the third podcast we've worked on together. Uh, we did Dirty John a few years ago, and we're learning as we go. I know you also did Man in the Window about the Golden State Killer with Paige St. John in 2019. And you and I have been mostly print journalists for most of our careers, so this has been a journey for both of us. There are countless podcasts out there now, many more than uh, there were when we started doing this. And one of the things that I think is different about the ones that we make is the emphasis on the reporting and getting the reporting exactly right, which is one of the reasons that these take a long time to do. Uh, I think this is the third one we've done in four years. They do take a long time to do, but they're really rewarding and, and I, I hope fun and interesting to listen to. Why don't we just dive in? Uh, episode one has a lot of really fascinating moments in it, and it introduces us to this crazy case, uh, one of the longest murder trials in California history, and one that did not get a lot of attention outside of Stanislaus County. Your last two podcasts have been based in Orange County, Dirty John and Detective Trap. How did you find your way to Stanislaus County? What drew you to, to this case? Well, Carson is arrested in uh, August 2015, along with the three highway patrolmen and his wife and stepdaughter, and it made the news for uh, about a nanosecond. I mean, they, they made the national news, and even the UK papers picked it up, and then it just vanished in the blizzard of a million other stories. And I think it came and went so fast that most people, including me, uh, missed it. Around that time, I'm talking to a good friend of mine, the writer Tom Lake, who's on the other side of the country, and he said, have you been paying attention to that bizarre case out of Modesto? So I start following it from a distance. For three or four years, I follow it from a distance. Uh, I program a Google alert, which uh, gives me the local news about the prelim and about the trial. Um, but it's not happening near any of the major media centers. The AP isn't there. So it's pretty much getting... Um, basic local coverage, with the exception of some local bloggers. And this is about five hours north of L.A. in the Central Valley. And, you know, during this period, we were doing other things. We were doing uh, Framed. We were doing Dirty John. We were doing Detective Trap. And so it's not until the late stages of the trial in March 2019 that I get up there and I start looking into the case. And my initial thought is, reading the news stories, this sounds sinister beyond belief. Um, what kind of craziness is happening up there? How does a defense attorney get three cops involved in a murder plot? How do they all go to the dark side? It sounds like a Dashiell Hammett novel. I, I figure it's going to be a, uh, a strange and twisted story, and the specifics of it will be coming out at trial. But pretty quickly, it became clear to me that uh, there was a different story here. Uh, the real story seemed to me whether this case hung together at all. Let's talk about Frank Carson. The Trials of Frank Carson is the name of this podcast. And, you know, when you first told me about the story and you first described Frank Carson, I kept thinking that if this was 20 years ago and they made a movie out of it, the late Wilford Brimley would have been cast as Frank Carson. That was the, 
visual picture I got. Your description of him walking into the courthouse, trudging, carrying a cane, carrying a satchel, acting as a lawyer in one courtroom and then standing trial for murder in the other is, uh, is crazy. And I think we should just talk about Frank Carson. You, you met with him, you talked to him, you interviewed him. Even his supporters in episode one talk about how mean he could be uh, to his opponents in the courtroom. Uh, and he, he was uh, certainly an incendiary figure in the legal community in Stanislaus County. And yet he also has people who love, adore, and you know, highly respect him. So let's talk about Frank Carson and, and your time with him and what people should know about him beyond what, what they already do. Yeah, I mean, he was an extremely combative lawyer and uh, a, a burr under the saddle for many years in Stanislaus County for the authorities. Here are some words from Percy Martinez, who represented Carson in his criminal case and was one of his oldest friends. They'd known each other since the early 90s. From the time that I met him uh, back in the 90s until today, he just has absolutely no filter where he can say, okay, I'm going to be nice to this guy. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's not nice to any, any officer on any case that he's on. And he is tenacious. There will be an objection and he will continue to argue and the judge will rule against him and he will continue to argue. There's never a time when they can even think that he's being kind or sociable. It's always a very, very nasty always uh, derogatory in nature. Percy Martinez told me he thought Carson's combativeness was a tactic he used to win cases. He keeps these guys off balance. They're always off balance. They're never comfortable. It's not like, oh, is he kidding? No, because I see him. He'll do things, and then, you know, I'll meet with him, and he will laugh, and he'll say, no, they'll, they'll remember that. You see, he explains to me, that and he's as calm as can be, and he'll be laughing. And he says, "Well, I like when they're uncomfortable." I say, "I don't ever like them to be comfortable around me." He does it in court, you know. He does it, you know, to the judge. Uh, he will make remarks that will keep the judge tuned up a little bit. He just tunes her up. And I point right to the DA. I said, "These people think you're stupid. They think you're stupid." That, that they can throw out anything and that you will swallow. Trial is like theater, and it is contagious. It's contagious. And, and if I hold myself out as learning, like with the jury, it's contagious that they're contemptuous as well. And then we try to finish our examination on a strong note, and by that time, you're shaking your head, and you, finally you just go, I'm done. I'm done with this witness or something like that. <laughs> and I meet him when I get up there. I go by his office during the last months of trial, and uh, my first image of him is of this, uh, this big, shambling, country-looking guy in work clothes, and he's repairing a broken window at his office. He's six foot two. He's, uh, he's in failing health. He's taking Vicodin for his pain, which is why when you hear his voice, in this podcast, it's not always strong because his health is failing. But he uh, he allowed me to sit down with him and uh, and talk to him at length. We didn't go on the record until sometime later after he had had a kind of deathbed experience where he had a uh, he had sepsis in uh, his dialysis port and he was close to dying, and it wasn't clear that he would uh, he would make it through the weekend. Um, right after that, I got up there and got him on the record and got him on tape, and I think his 
his uh, motive was uh, he wanted this story told. What he told me is uh, it's the stuff of a bad novel, except nobody would believe it. And he said he'd been destroyed by the case. When, when I got up there to talk to him, he was at a point where he did not know whether he would be locked up for life on this case, even though he had been let go because the prosecution had blundered so badly in the matter of uh, turning over evidence to the defense. They had to let him go. Um, well, the judge decided to let him go. Um, so he was out, and that was another thing that drew me to this case is the weirdness of it. I had never in my many years covering courts seen the spectacle of a defense attorney handling homicides as a lawyer in one courtroom and then shuffling down the hall and sitting at the defendant's table as the defendant in another. That was uh, singularly bizarre. Let me ask you about his courtroom demeanor yeah. and his interactions with prosecutors and law enforcement. There's a quote from Frank in episode one that is is really fascinating. He's talking about dealing with the government, law enforcement, prosecutors. He said, we could be chummy in things, but in the back of their mind, they should know that. And this is figuratively that I have a butcher knife. And if I get a chance to get behind you and stab you, I'll do it, you know, for my client. And that seems like, um, even for many criminal defense lawyers, that seems like, um, you know, a pretty overt statement of his feelings about the other side. I wonder what you made of that quote and, in general, how he related to people in the government. His reputation was as somebody who, uh, who hated the local cops. He would deny that. He would say, no, I don't hate all the local cops, just the ones that I have caught lying. Carson told me that one of the formative experiences for him was uh, when he was in his early 30s, he was just out of law school and handling one of his first cases. Anyway, and I caught the cop lying. And I knew he was lying because I'd been to the scene and, you know, how you do on first cases, you just overemphasize everything. And I caught him lying and lying, and I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. I'd given speeches to the young Republicans. I'd worked for the uh, Republican National Committee in Washington, D.C. I had taken young Republicans to the 1976 Kansas Republican Convention, and I just couldn't get over these sons of bitches start lying. And they're the guys that are supposed to be telling the truth. And I get the, the alleged criminal lying. I get that. I mean, I get that dynamic which I don't have a big issue. You know, I, I get it. It's human nature or something. What I don't get is the guys that are supposed to be telling the truth and they're supposed to be waving the flag and they're supposed to be, you know, giving it down the middle, aren't. It was an absolute, not only a cultural shock, but just a personal, emotional betrayal. One of the ironies of this case is he becomes very close and feels paternal toward one of the highway patrol officers who's wrapped up in this, Walter Wells. But yeah, he was uh, unsparing in his criticism and uh, sometimes very nasty in his criticism of uh, local law enforcement. And he did what he thought that he needed to to win. He was a troublemaker. And I, I have many quotes from many local defense attorneys um, who have said, yeah, he had a way of attacking everything on every issue, not letting anything go. And he was willing to go further than the rest of us. 
And one of the reasons that he was so successful was he was a hometown boy. He was from Modesto. Uh, he could relate to the uh, to the local people, many of whom are from Oklahoma and uh, Texas generations back, and his family's from Texas also. He liked cars. He liked antique cars. Modesto, of course, is is the setting of uh, George Lucas's American Graffiti, which is about that whole era of car hopping and a sweeter, more innocent uh, Modesto and a sweeter, more innocent America. But Carson grew up uh, in that city, and so he could relate to the people. And I think this maybe gave him more credibility with some of the local jurors when he was casting doubt on local law enforcement. It's a very conservative community, but there is also a streak of uh, distrust of authority up there as well. There was another case that he told me about. This was in the early 90s. It was a trial in which he represented a single mom, a nurse with a special needs kid, and she was accused of being a sex offender, talking salaciously to some teenage boys and eating a banana provocatively. And police had searched her house. This is what Carson says about that case. She had a Ouija board, and they equated the Ouija board with devil worship. And that's how far this goes back. This goes back to the McMartin uh, satanic child sexual thing and all that old bullshit. No, I remember that trial. I got her acquitted. But it was just uh, these boys had gotten in trouble on something else, so they all of a sudden their bad behavior in school is blamed on this, this woman whose son was a special needs. They point the finger at this nurse and say that she, she uh, ate a banana in a salacious way. Had she been convicted, she'd be a sex offender. She'd lose her job. It's symptomatic of, of a bullshit that we've had to try over the years. It isn't just that case. It's case after case after case. Let's uh, talk just a little bit more about Stanislaus County, Modesto, Turlock, places you got to know very well. You sort of dived into the, the corners and the nooks and the crannies of, of those areas. What can you tell us about what you learned in your trips up there and, and the people you met? The county seat is Modesto, where a lot of the action in the podcast takes place. It's where the courthouse is. You see a big arch when you get to downtown that says water, wealth, health, contentment. It has a charming downtown area, and there are tiles on the sidewalk commemorating the American graffiti era. It's about an hour and a half east of San Francisco, so it's one of the bedroom communities for Bay Area workers. It's an agricultural area, and the DA tells me there are about 25 to 35 homicides a year in a county of a about 550,000, a geographically large county, really dead center in the middle of the state. Here's the district attorney of Stanislaus County, Birgit Flatiger, who you also hear from in the podcast. We're like many of the Central Valley counties. We're underfunded. All local government is pretty underfunded. We have incredible challenges with poverty, with graduation rates, crime, gangs, Domestic violence is off the hook. Modesto is also pretty well known as one of the country's car theft capitals, and it has a flourishing drug trade. Addicts, tweakers, thieves, parolees. And it's relevant because the government used a lot of witnesses who were part of this world in the case against Carson, and their reliability was always in question. And one of the, one of the members of that 
community, that underground, if you will, was the victim, Corey Kaufman, who, you know, is a fascinating character unto himself. Somebody who, you know, was a scrapper, seemingly stole metal and other objects and sold it, recycled it for money, had a lot of people who really uh, liked him and others who didn't. What can you say about Corey Kaufman, who went by the nickname Corndog and, uh, you know, suffered a sad sad fate. I mean, Corey Kaufman was a Turlock guy, and he'd been in and out of trouble with the law for years. He had made a number of enemies. And part of the trouble in this case for authorities was sifting through rumors about who really meant him harm. You know, he would strap on a headlamp and go out at night, and he'd look for scrap metal. He'd go into people's yards and grab what he could carry. He rode around town on his bicycle hauling scrap metal behind him, and people said you could hear him from a block away. Uh, and you can make a few hundred dollars a day at the recycling place doing that. He had a pretty serious methamphetamine habit, too, and was known at times to carry a knife and to pull it. He happened to be buddies with this guy, Mike Cooley, who lived right next door to Frank Carson, Frank Carson's property in Turlock. Carson lived in Modesto, but he had a property where his stepdaughter lived, in this town of Turlock, which is about 15 miles south down Highway 99. And on this big empty lot, Carson kept a lot of scrap metal, uh, a lot of junk and antiques, a lot of old cars that he worked on, and thieves just loved it. Thieves would raid this place constantly. The theory that the prosecution eventually landed on was that Corey Kaufman had planned to raid Carson's property on the night he disappeared, uh, that he went through the fence or over the fence and never came back. Chris, getting back to Frank Carson, tell us a little bit more about his, his background. You mentioned that his family comes from Texas. How did he find his way into the legal community in his hometown? And what were some of the cases that brought him prominence as a, either a public defender or a criminal defense attorney? Yeah, it took him a while to put himself through law school. He went to Modesto Junior College, and he was working while he was going to law school in San Francisco. Um, he was working on a car lot, selling cars. He was selling antique books. Uh, he finally got his law license in the late 80s, and he was admitted to the bar in 1988 when he was 34, which is, you know, a few years later than it takes a lot of lawyers to get going. So he had some life experience behind him when he starts. And one of the big cases uh, at which he uh, really kind of made his name was the Sabatino case. Carmen Sabatino was the mayor of Modesto. And the DA at the time, whose name was uh, Jim Brazelton, he filed charges against Sabatino in 2003. Sabatino, the mayor, was accused of things like getting free cable while he voted on a cable TV contract, using a chef from his personal restaurant, to cater city council meals while he pockets the money, that sort of thing, uh, using city employees for personal work. And Carson took this case. He really went to war for Sabatino. He really went to war against the judge who ultimately held him in contempt five times. It was an eight-week trial. Carson got five contempt of court citations from this visiting judge. And uh, Carson didn't seem to care at all. I talked to him later about it. And he was unrepentant, called the judge a jackass, and uh, did not seem at all chastened by it. He accused the judge during this trial of fostering a cult-like atmosphere 
um, because the judge would bring the jurors donuts and the jurors brought him a cake with a golf ball on it. Uh, this is the judge. And Carson said, look, the jurors are going to take their cue from you. If you dislike me, they are going to dislike me. And the judge said he wouldn't let Carson turn his courtroom into a circus. And the suspicion was that Carson was picking fights with the judge so that if his client, the mayor, lost, he had appealable issues. And the judge said the court is not going to bite on that. The jury deadlocked, and uh, the DA, the new DA, Birgit Flatiger, declined to refile. So Carson counted it as a win. I, I didn't believe in hopeless trials. Stuff would happen, and I would question things, and we had luck. But I got to where I wasn't afraid to lose. And I think that a lot of people are afraid to lose. And a lot of people are afraid to uh, look bad in front of a jury. And I was not afraid of that. And I never, ever tried to let being a lawyer go to my head. But don't, don't get to believe in your own bullshit. Because you're not a fucking bit smarter just because you're a lawyer. You're no better. You're no smarter. You know nothing better, okay, as far as I'm concerned. There's a really great sort of dual perspective on Frank Carson in episode one, where on the one hand, we hear about those sorts of tactics. Frank Carson, uh, according to the DA, made judges cry, made a judge cry. And yet, also in episode one, he becomes very emotional talking to you, uh, seems to get choked up, asks for a hanky, and it feels like there's really two competing visions of this guy, and that really comes through. It seems like both can be true, I suppose. One of the defense lawyers I spoke to said that Frank Carson's greatest gift was his ability to cry on cue, and I think he was only half joking when he said this. Um, during my conversations with him, Carson uh, would frequently get choked up, and he would get choked up uh, during his summations before juries, I think because... He convinced himself very often that he was on the right side of things. I mean, it's the common question that defense attorneys get. You know, how can you defend these people even if you know they're guilty? And the answer that Carson would give is, by the time the trial was over, I was totally convinced of his innocence. And even in cases when that wasn't necessarily so, he would say, look, the guy might be guilty of something, but not necessarily to the extent that the DA is accusing him of. In other words, the DA is overcharging the case. And that's one of the ways defense attorneys explain their work because they're very often challenged by people. You know, how can you defend the worst of the worst and so forth? Carson had a ready answer and that was it. One of the things that comes up during the Sabatino trial that's worth mentioning, he mentioned that he was known as, uh, as being mean to people. One of the people Carson was particularly mean to is DA investigator Kirk Bunch, who was involved in the Sabatino case as an investigator. And at one point, Carson asked during trial that Bunch be disarmed. During a witness's testimony, Bunch, from his seat, uh, had apparently called a witness a liar loud enough for people to hear. Uh, he hissed it, according to Carson. And Carson accused him of, uh, quote, cracking up, nutting up. And he said, uh, quote, the fact that he's armed, I think you know he's dangerous. And the DA would denounce what he called Carson's vilification of Bunch and he would say, he's been a peace officer for many, many years. I have complete confidence that he's not nutting up, I think, as Mr. Carson so crudely put it. 
and the DA in that case called the motion to disarm him patently offensive and an act of provocation, and uh, the judge denied the motion. Now, Bunch is the investigator that Carson later uh, drafts this court declaration about, saying that among local attorneys familiar with his work, he's uh, reviled as dishonest and unprofessional. And later, it would be Kirk Bunch, who led the investigation on the DA side into the case against Frank Carson. Now, when Bunch is asked about this, he replies that his history with Carson did not leave him biased against him. But when people talk about how personal Carson made his attacks, this is a good example. Here's Percy Martinez again. Uh, he doesn't know how to uh, walk away from a win and be satisfied with that. He will make co- he'll sit there in the courtroom after the jury is left and he'll make comments in front of the judge, in front of the bailiffs. He goes, you are nothing but a lying cop. I mean, out in the open. He doesn't wait till they're alone or anything. He, right there, in you know where we stand as lawyers, he will look at him and point to him and says, "You're nothing but a liar." You know, he just has no filter that you know he doesn't stop after he wins. He keeps going. Chris, one of the moments that stands out in episode one is where Frank Carson describes uh, a story that he tells to jurors in trials about the reliability or unreliability of evidence. And he cites his experience with a payday candy bar in Monroe, Louisiana, that, as the story goes, uh, has a maggot inside the packaging. And he has to decide whether uh, to throw out the candy bar or to take a chance and eat part of the candy bar that does not seem to have uh, been visited by the maggot you ask him how many times have, has he told that story and his wife interjects and says, how many times haven't you told that story? It's a fun moment. And what can you tell us about that anecdote and uh, how effective has that been with jurors? Well, it seemed to work because he used it over and over and over and over and local attorneys would borrow or steal this anecdote and frame it in their own terms about some food item they'd uh, they'd tried to eat at some point that turned out to be tainted. Yeah, it was Carson's go-to story. It was his signature story. He used it uh, for years. He doesn't use big fancy words, but he connects with juries because he's not trying to be more than he is. And he's very simple in the way that he asks his questions. Uh, and he doesn't try to sound you know, like he's real educated. He goes, you know, I'm a big guy. And, you know, sometimes I go on long trips and I get hungry. And uh, and so I was on this trip. I was on this trip coming home and, you know, like I had $5 and I stopped and, and uh, uh, I had enough to get myself a big Pepsi and uh, uh, a candy bar. And I'm opening my candy bar, and I open up my candy bar. Man, I'm hungry. I'm so hungry. And I open it, and there's maggots on the tip. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then he'll hit his head. He goes, what do I do now? Well, I think to myself, well, I could rip off the piece that has the maggots on it, and then I can eat the rest. And he says, and I'll always get a look from the jurors, oh, no. And then 
he says, or he goes, probably the better thing to do is to just throw the whole thing away. And I got to see him deliver this speech at one point during my coverage of this case. It's very effective in terms of simplifying a legal concept. And Frank has a way of using facial expressions and body language. And he'll be using all kinds of, you know, he'll hit his head like Columbo used to, and then he'll point at the, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait a minute, let me get this straight. And, and then he does a Columbo thing. It just made me wonder whether prosecutors along the way on rebuttal may have had something to say about the payday candy bar anecdote that he describes. I think sometimes they tried to counter it. He told me uh, of one case where a prosecutor brought up his own candy bar and tried to counter the metaphor with his own candy bar, and Carson countered the counter by actually very slowly and theatrically eating it in court to distract the jury from the prosecutor's summation. Yeah, he was a showman. He told me about uh, a time in another trial where he tried to get under the prosecutor's skin by tearing a piece of paper off a notepad and pretending he was shredding a piece of evidence. And I ripped this thing off like that, and it was real good and loud over there by the jury. He leaps up out of his chair, you know, and he starts yelling that I'm destroying his exhibits or something like that, and he turns around, and I'm just holding the thing like this. The jury's right there. And I have my little note here, and we look at him like he's a man in the moon. I mean, he, we, like he's nuts. Episode two, uh, we have a disappearance. That is the disappearance of Corey Kaufman and uh, the investigative efforts undertaken to figure out who was involved in that. Perhaps you can give us a little glimpse into where that might be headed. Well, in episode two, we will meet Michael Cooley, who was supposedly Corey Kaufman's best friend. Michael Cooley is a former uh, admitted Aryan Brotherhood prison gang member. He's been involved in crime and drugs for a long time, and he's one of the first people to steer police toward Frank Carson. And defense attorneys will have a lot to say about Michael Cooley. Uh, We will meet him. We will hear his voice, along with the voices of a lot of other people in uh, episode two. Uh, And we will hear a confrontation between detectives and Frank Carson at his office. It lasts uh, six and a half minutes, and it is extremely dramatic. All right. Thank you very much, Chris, and uh, look forward to bonus episode two. And uh, thanks again, LA Times subscribers. The Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. On this bonus episode, our editor was Steve Clow, our executive producer, Abby Fentress Swanson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Our theme song was made by Alex McGinnis. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Asal Esanapur. <laughs>